Um, okay, let's do it. I like that idea. All right. Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum, and joining me in this discussion is the venerable Joseph Wren, who continues to wonder why I am so hung up on these subjects. Good evening, you, the gruesome person listening to this episode. I want to thank you for being a listener of this show, for being a fan, and if this is your first episode of the Fright Lab, we're going to get into some conversation about that wonderful nostalgic landmark that is the video store. This is a bit of a one-off for us. We haven't talked about places. We talk about horror movies on this show. And I want to welcome you, all of you gruesome people, to this sidebar, as it were. Can we, can we call it an experiment, Lucas? I think so. I think we can call this an experiment pretty comfortably. So I wanted to take a break from our normal material tonight and just talk a little bit about a subject that is near and dear to me. The death of the video store and what we can do now that they're gone. This idea started for me after we recorded one of the earliest episodes of the show. I think it was maybe episode three or four. Uh, as I've said before, I think horror is a great space to explore and deal with the strange stuff in our lives. But I also started to think about how important the experience of being in video stores as a kid, you know, it had a massive impact on my tastes. I keep thinking back to something that William S. Burroughs pointed out. I think it was in his book, Junkie. Uh, he pointed out that he knew from an early age that he wanted to smoke opium. He claimed that he had heard about this idea of uh, the first time from a governess or someone who worked for his family. I, I, I'm having a hard time recalling exactly. Now, uh, I'm not endorsing the abuse of opiates here, but I sort of understand what he meant in a way. I saw the imagery of horror early on in my life, and from a sort of like weird pop cultural osmosis, I, I absorbed it in. And on some level, I think I've been kind of obsessed with this stuff my whole life. So tonight, I want to talk about the impact of that sort of exposure, and I also want to bring up a few other parts, a few other ideas. This is going to be less of the typical me lecturing you for like 45 minutes and more of a conversation between Joe and I, because he and I have some similar feelings and uh, maybe some places where we differ. We'll see where it goes. Um, let's strap in. We've got some points to start with. So, Joe, you and I are roughly like the same age. We're kind of in the same age cohort. What are your memories of video stores? I can go back to the youngest memories I have. And we're talking age three and even age two. I've got the pictures and they have dates. I can prove it goes back that far. <laughs> and I remember walking down the block with my mom to the video store. I wish I could remember. I could probably look it up with enough internet research and figure out what it was called. But the one that stands out, the one I'm going to go back to, was in my kindergarten years after we had moved and my Monday through Friday was no longer the babysitter or the daycare or the four hours in the morning that lead to you going home again. Now it was about video games. I remember when I got that Nintendo Entertainment System for my birthday. Mm -hmm. And I remember the video store that was on Main Street. And I remember it was small. It's a bit of a hole in the wall. The main room was not much bigger than my entire basement. It was one of those strip mall stores, right? And they had more movies, VHS tapes, than I had ever seen. And they had them displayed in a way more like a carpet store. You know how they they put those samples on hinges where like the entire wall is a book and they all cascade diagonally? Yeah, yeah. This is how I recall the layout being. So you had your horror movies, you had your comedies, your action movies, the video games, the thing that started me off being there. What stands out to me the most at that point in my life? $2.11 for a two-day rental. So you're renting it on Saturday, you better be there in the morning because it's got to be back by Sunday night. Or, if you're clever, 
you drop it through the slot Monday morning before the place opens and you don't have to pay late fees. <laughs> Fast forward to my teenage years, the end of the blockbuster franchise. I have to say that now because there's still one somewhere out there. Somebody bought everything blockbuster and now it's the hometown video store of a town that escapes me. I'll probably look it up while you're telling everyone your memories, Lucas. Yeah. But at some point, it was so absurd, right? It was $7 to rent a movie for an entire month. And you had to ask yourself, who rents a movie for an entire month? <laughs> who needs to watch the movie that much? Then I realized it was for me, the guy renting the video games. So my favorite memories are the library of films. I think of the video store as a library for people that are interested in movies, in TV shows, in video games, in media that is centered around the television and home entertainment. We're going to talk about this as we go on. I think the video store was, they were the baseline, right? They were the tastemakers of their time. The record store had this with music. Someone would facilitate you being interested in media. And that's what the video store did. Whether it was they have the new movies, the old classics, you get to become a fan of film by spending just a little bit of money at the video store. And that was your popcorn movie for the evening. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that uh, growing up in like South St. Louis uh, in the like 80s and 90s, uh, there was a lot of small mom and pop stores. There was kind of one like every few blocks, more or less. And it was those stores where my my movie memories really pick up. And I've talked about this in other episodes, so this will be maybe a bit of repetition, but hear me out. So a lot of these stores were in uh, like strip malls weren't really a thing even yet. So a lot of these stores were just corner stops or they were part of an area that had one or two stores kind of connected to each other. Uh, you might have a convenience store and a video store next to each other, kind of uh, kind of where Clerks Guy, I think, gets its inspiration is that sort of setup. So a lot of these stores would, you know, they might have a couple copies of like Star Wars, maybe an Indiana Jones joint, uh, whatever was the new stuff, they'd get a couple of copies in. But the majority of the store was stocked with some classics. You know, you, you know, if you were looking for uh, Casablanca or the Universal Monsters or whatever, they, they, they would have that stuff. But it was also stocked with a lot of shit, a lot of bad 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 action and fantasy joints uh some of you in the audience will no doubt have watched the death stalker series of films which let me tell you they are scintillating i'm gonna sidetrack for a second i forgot to mention the direct to video gold mine that was oh the video God. store well we're gonna touch on that just a little <laughs> bit and some of its modern iterations but there was a lot of stuff that you like it was just import stuff um i remember I, and Someone in the audience must have a copy of this. If not, someone in the audience will send me a link to where I can find it. But I seem to remember being maybe eight years old, maybe, and seeing a Jeff Goldblum horror film called Mr. Frost. And I remember it being very spooky and very British. And that's the only things <laughs> that's the only things I remember about this movie. So it was stuff like that. It was a lot of weird imports. A lot of one-offs, a lot of bad fantasy and action movies, uh, a lot of Golden Globus films. Holy shit. Okay, so uh, for the audience, because you can't see it, Joe just pulled up the trailer for Mr. Frost. Uh, hold, just scroll back up on IMDb. Scroll down, there we go. Okay, so it says, A serial killer gets sent to a mental institution, but as his insidious presence caused the doctors and orderlies to receive strange visits. The psychiatrist finds out his true identity. I should have been, I should have done that as a living and not what I've ended up doing. <laughs> um, right, so... Who is Mr. Frost? No one has been able to turn up the slightest clue regarding Frost's identity. There is no official trace of him anywhere. What has he done? And in two years he hasn't uttered a single word? Frost is not mentally ill, Dr. Day. He has no place in your hospital. What does he want with us? So, in fact, who are you? I'm the Gaga Man. Boo. 
He spoke to you. I'm not afraid of him. It used to be simple. Good on one hand, evil on the other. There was a struggle. But then you came along, the scientists, the geniuses. What do you want from us? What do you want from me? I want, I must, reveal to the world your impotence in the presence of the age-old power of the wild side. There was a lot of these films that just you would only find at the video store and then they disappear off the shelves and never to be seen again until some maniac pulls them up or has them on IMDb. So, you know, dealing with that stuff, you had those corner stores and then by the, I don't know, I want to say maybe late 80s, early 90s into the mid 90s, you had your local chains. There was a chain in South County of St. Louis that I, I lived in for a while uh, called Star Video. They had, I think, one, maybe two locations. And they were kind of uh, prototypical of like blockbuster and places like that. They were larger spaces that had more movies. They would have more of your copies of bigger stuff. You know, again, your, your big name productions, they would have more copies of that. But there again, they had tons of crap. And that's where I first started seeing the direct-to-video phenomenon. Um, I've talked before in previous episodes about like Full Moon Features, uh, the people who brought us uh, the Puppet Master films and subspecies and all of that stuff. Those movies made up the bulk of a lot of video stores. And, okay, let, let's level with ourselves. I love subspecies. You all know that. <laughs> but a lot of these movies, the direct-to-video ones sucked <laughs> they were so bad but they were also very important right like they they made up the bulk of the diet like they, they were i hate to say this but the, it was the junk food that filled out the rest of my cinematic diet as a kid and I, I don't want it to sound more important than it was like i watched the same crap action movies that everyone else did i saw the same sci-fi flicks that everyone else did it wasn't until a little bit later that that horror stuff started really sticking to me but you know, we, we, we would see that stuff and typically like your direct to video stuff, it was a one or $2 rental for three or four nights. So you could rent four or five of them for next to nothing. And you could have a weekend's worth of bullshit to watch. And that's what it ended up being time and time again. And you know why you watched it? Because you spent money on it. <laughs> That's something we've talked about on all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com. There is something lost with the current media stream. Everybody is paying subscription fees, getting access to streaming services, and now you look for things that are familiar, you look for things that look good, but you're not invested. The majority of people are not invested. Some of them are learning to consume the media the same way we used to but you have to think about it like a library book you go to the library you look for something that you're interested in or you look for something that sparks your interest they're not the same thing and you take that home for a duration of time and you focus on it because you've made a commitment you've invested your time in whatever that book is and the video store did that with films you invested your time into this looks good i recognize this actor or this cover or this poster looks good to me yeah i'm reading the back this description seems interesting what's the runtime on this and you take it home because that's your evening or that's your weekender that's going to be your Saturday night. And no matter how bad it was, you didn't pull it out of the VHS player and take it back to the store and say, I want my money back. This one's not good. VCR. No one remembers the term VCR. Everyone calls it a VHS player. Now it drives me up a goddamn wall. It's a VCR. <laughs> can we, can we please, can we please go back to the old language? To be fair, it was a VCR because it was a video cassette recorder. VHS players did exist and they had no recording capability maybe that's the case 
but I'm still going to call it a VCR. <laughs> I'm not backing down from this one. I'm sorry. I'm with you. But yeah, I, you know, it, and you make an interesting point, right? Like, and we're going to talk about streaming services a little later in this episode. But one of the things for me is I pay, I don't know, I think maybe 15, 20 bucks a month for all of the streaming services that I, I pay for. The rest are all free stuff. Um, we're going to talk about those free services also. But if I start a movie and it kind of sucks, I'll happily uh, click out of it and watch something else because it it's not costing me any more to not watch a movie. But if you got 20 minutes into the apparently real Jeff Goldblum film, Mr. Frost, and discovered you didn't like it, guess what, buddy? You paid $3.99 to have this for the weekend. You're going to finish the movie because you feel like, like you're getting a bad investment <laughs> if you don't. One of the feelings I have is that the social element of movie recommendations are kind of a thing of the past. It's not the way it used to. Uh, growing up very blue collar in uh, the, the kind of center of the country, bookstores and libraries and movie stores, those sorts of places, they were a common thing in my life. We may not have had a lot of money growing up. You know, we weren't tremendously poor by any stretch, but, you know, we had a limited budget and we were going to rent one movie a week. But as time went on, places like libraries started carrying music and, and movies, and then music stores became a little more prevalent, so you could go visit those as well. You know, I had the experience of being exposed to the covers of movies and the uh, movie posters the way Joe was talking about, as well as hearing, like, random comments from other shoppers or listening to the clerks at these places, be that the library or the music store or the video store, where people knew just so, so much about weird niche subjects in movies, you know, and other than podcasts, how are we supposed to learn about the stuff with that ear to mouth exposure, right? Like that's something that I really worry about is amongst my, my social group who, of people who like horror movies, it's not uncommon to say, oh, did you see this thing on shutter? Oh, you didn't. Okay. Go check that out. Well, that's one thing that's coming from a buddy of mine who knows me. It's another thing entirely though, that not having video stores anymore, I don't, I don't know how people are talking about this the way they used to without going online and like, I don't know how many of you remember uh, like bulletin board culture, but think about it's how still out there, man. Yeah. Think about how bad like Reddit and Twitter get bulletin board culture was just as bad. It was just more pedantic. I think the perception used to be the catalog of movies was finite Let's take it back to the 90s. Let's take it back to the 80s. I don't know if video stores were really present in the 70s, because how could they be? We didn't have VHS or Betamax to argue about what format was going to win, but the 80s is a good place to start the conversation, because that's when tapes existed, and home media really became a thing. As fans of film, as fans of music, we only had 50 years of recorded history, and less than 30 years of that was films, music, and television that people were really nostalgic for. So there was a finite amount of movies to watch. And your perception going into the video store was action, comedy, horror, alphabetized A to Z. And especially when you were younger, that's all the movies in the world. We didn't have this perception of there's movies being made today. And when the newest film comes out and I get to go to the video store and rent it and take it home and watch it, that's a good day for me. We are at a point, and the internet has done this, technology has changed, everything has improved for the sake of the artist and the actor. I don't want to take that away from anyone. But I do want everyone to take a deep breath and say this sentence out loud. I can never see all of it. <laughs> I can never hear all of it because it is being created so rapidly now that it's not a goal any of us can reach. We don't have that much time. But back then, you believed. 
you could check off every box. <laughs> that's I hate to say it, but that's kind of true, right? Like there is a level of analysis paralysis that you can get, um, you know, using like Spotify or whatever like audio streaming platform you're into. Um, it can be very overwhelming sometimes. You know, if you have 300 bands that you're following on whatever platform, it can be really overwhelming to say, what do I want to listen to on the way to work this morning? I mean, thankfully, I mostly have pretty short commutes, so it tends to not be that big of a deal. But it is kind of frustrating because, you know, on one hand, and I'm going to talk about this kind of a little more here in a bit, there is this element of the entire cinematic universe is at my fingertips. And depending on how much money you're willing to spend month to month, you can subscribe to anything from the real kind of, no offense, bottom level with Netflix, which is kind of the biggest mass appeal kind of joint, up to something like Criterion Collections, highly specialized, highly specific types of films. So the, the options are there. It's just how much money can you or will you spend, right? But there's this other part of me that feels like, <laughs> I, I just realized this very funny thing that happened recently. I had made some popcorn. My girlfriend and I were going to watch a movie. We made popcorn. And in the time it took us to find something to watch on one of the five streaming services we had available to us, we finished the entire bowl of popcorn before the movie even started. Now, some of that just has to do with the fact that I'm ravenous when it comes to eating popcorn. Fun fact. But uh, there is an element of it that is very much unless you know exactly what you want to watch, the sheer amount of streaming services can be really, really overwhelming. Ren, I feel the same way about music, quite frankly. I want to advocate for the consumer. We hate walled gardens. I don't care about your licensing deals. I don't care about who owns what. I don't care about who's going to roll their own service or somebody's going to get paid more money than others and it becomes a competition. You know what the consumer wants? We want to pay whatever the price is and just be able to watch the fucking thing. At this point, we all want to search for whatever the movie or the show is and just hit the button and watch it. And I have to applaud companies like Apple and Google with their streaming devices, whether it's Apple TV or Android TV, Chromecast, etc. They've tried to solve this problem. They've tried to become the syndicators, the facilitators of consuming media, but they haven't solved the problem yet. The reason I think people struggle is because there's nothing tangible on the other end of the screen. When you go to the video store, you have to see the film, the VHS tape, the DVD, the Blu-ray has to physically be there for you to pick up and say, do I want to watch this? It's not just another thing that's on your streaming app that you can watch anytime you want. Because you make decisions about what you're going to listen to or watch based on availability, don't you? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I and mean, I think you and I have maybe talked about this a little bit uh, kind of off mic is that in the last year or so, I've actually started buying physical media again. And I had mostly... Welcome back. I know, I'm very brave for that. I'm incredibly brave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, like, in the last couple, like, the last year, last 16 months, I'd started buying physical media again because I'd gotten to a point where I would like a movie and then it disappears off of streaming. Now, in the case of smaller services like like in like Shutter, that kind of makes sense because while they have a fairly deep uh, budget, they only can afford so much. So stuff has to come and go. And that's fine. I understand that. But in the case of someone like Netflix or HBO or Hulu or whatever, they have basically infinite money. And I've never understood the coming and going of media like that. So if I really like something, I'm now buying it because to me, it seems two things. One, I'm kind of tired of not having access to something that I'm basically have paid for. And two, there is this part of me that worries. And, and this is going to sound infinitely more conspiratorial than it actually is. So hear me out. A lot of my worry is that when you don't have physical copies of media, 
there is a phenomenon where a movie could be changed and you would never know because you'd never have an alternate copy. Case in point, uh, recently I got from my local library, uh, I, I, I had them bring in a copy of the movie Legend. Hadn't seen it in many years. Um, for those of you who've never seen it, it's a early Tom Cruise vehicle, but it also stars uh, Tim Curry. It's a fun fantasy movie. Long story short, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. When when you say starring Tim Curry, what you really mean is Tim Curry is playing the devil in one of the greatest performances of the devil ever. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, without question. And and for all the legend fiends out there, yes, he's called Darkness. They don't call him the devil. He's the fucking devil. Yeah. But, I mean, he, if you've never seen the movie, go watch it. You'll know what I mean. But those of you who know, you know. Right. So... One of the things about it, though, that kind of annoyed me was that the copy that I watched um, had the original Jerry Goldsmith score. Now, the Goldsmith score. Very nice. The Goldsmith score rules. It's so good. It sounds great. But I'd only ever seen the version with the Goldsmith score once before. The theatrical release, as is always the case with Ridley Scott movies, is violently different than the one he envisioned. And the and uh, it was the 80s, so it was, it was 80s. 100% electronic because it's cheaper. Well, it had Tangerine Dream, who at that time were a very promising uh, electronic group. Those of you who are fans of the show know the name Tangerine Dream because of the movie Angst, because Klaus Schultz, who did the score for that movie, was a member of Tangerine Dream at one point. So on one hand, it was cool to see uh, the director's cut of Legend, but I kind of wish it had had the theatrical cut, actually. Um, Admittedly, the director's cut, I think, is a better movie. But there's part of me that wanted to see the theatrical cut. So uh, fans of Shudder and fans of Joe Bob Briggs know that uh, Briggs always, you know, Joe Bob always argues for owning the physical media because... Well, media companies, conglomerates like Netflix or uh, you know Time Warner or whatever, can make stuff disappear. It can go into the vault and never come out. Um, this may be dating me terribly, but 500 years ago when I was a kid, uh, there was this thing that Disney would only release certain movies on VHS at certain times. Fantasia, which is one of Disney's crowning achievements of their early years, would only come out on VHS like every five years or something. It was very strange, but it was their way of controlling IP before they owned all of the IP in the fucking universe. And they were upfront about it too. Buy oh. it now, or it's going back in the vault. Yeah, exactly. It was it was weirdly actually sort of interesting to just see a company say like, "Yeah, we're going to put this away for ten years, and you won't get a copy legally." But what's interesting, like kind of like rounding back to that, is something that Joe showed me in the studio one night. We had finished recording, uh, this was a couple of months ago, this might have been before uh, 2023 even started, but Joe had told me that there was a cut of uh, Star Wars, the original, uh, well, what would later be called Episode 4, A New Hope, um, that was uh, recompiled by a bunch of editors to look like the original release of Star Wars. That, you know, is as close as you can get in terms of content and approach and visuals to the original and it had to be digitally corrected and blah 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 but it is watching chunks of it uh, kind of subsequently i can tell you that it's the version of star wars i saw as a little kid it's not the ones that got re-released when i was a teenager or have been put out on dvd i you know as you know i'm not a fandom guy but we all know the scene in the cantina we all know that han shoots greedo not the other way around like that's 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 how the original film was shot. Well, uh, George Lucas later in his career decided he didn't like that, so he made Greedo shoot first. Well, uh, again, that's not what the original movie did. And I don't want to tell an artist how they should feel about their art or what their art should be, but there is a part of me that goes, that's manipulating reality, and you're you're trying to make us think it was something that it wasn't. Again, I know that sounds conspiratorial, but I remember things the way I remember them. And there's a part of me that doesn't want artists fucking about with something that's been out for like 50 years. And that's something that's always existed, right? It goes back to the earliest days of television. And I'm going to say in recorded media, mm-hmm. because I don't see this happening with paintings. Maybe it does. Maybe modern artists have the same perspective. Who owns the film? The 
filmmaker, the production company, or the audience. As the audience, we say, respect us. You can do whatever you want with your movie, but don't take away what we remember. Others will say, the filmmaker, it's his film. And Ridley Scott's a great example of this. How many times can you re-edit that fucking movie before you finally get to (laughs) what you're trying to say? Now, it seems painful and it's easy to pick on Star Wars because it's been happening for decades at this point, just making changes here and there. But I can hear that conversation, right? You can hear that executive level conversation of, you released the movie and it did really well, but we noticed in this one scene, this one thing that... You know, it really doesn't play well in other countries, so we think you should change it. It's a business decision, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's it's a visualization of film and entertainment as a whole being a business. As the audience, we still think of it as art. We don't want it to change. I don't want Pablo Picasso to get a time machine and come into the future and say Yeah, I wasn't going for abstract anything. I was just a shitty painter. (laughs) But I've had time to practice, and I'm going to fix all these paintings. Well, no, dude, don't do that. So I understand it. But in a world where technology is catching up every day and making things easier than they've ever been, I don't want to say to any filmmaker, don't change your stuff. What I want them to do is make all the changes you want. If you're not satisfied because the only time art is really finished is when you stop working on it, right? But I would argue it's done when you show it to somebody. So do whatever you want, guys, but leave the original version. Again, that's a conversation about the business of filmmaking, but I'm glad you brought up physical media because I've been an advocate for this as long as I can remember, um, James Rolfe, uh, known for many things, maybe to most people and definitely for me first as the angry video game nerd, he's a huge film guy. What did he do? He built a video store in his basement. (laughs) He built shelving and put up wood paneling and set out some of his favorite films of all formats and all genres. And he even got an old CRT compact computer or something running DOS just so that he can have the old video store program, (laughs) right? The record keeping. Yeah. Because he wanted to preserve this idea of the video store. And I like it. But what he's trying to preserve and what all of us who are fans of our media are trying to preserve is this old concept and it goes back to I don't even know when but you know that scene in Beauty and the Beast where he opens up the double doors and it's a giant library yeah hasn't that always been a thing for the upper class to just build their library of information and I know it's also a thing for monks to be preservationists of written works So the idea of compiling information into a library has existed for a long time, right? Yeah, I, you know, there's this part of me that thinks about that for, you know, know, I, there are people like me who are, who have very long memories and for whatever reason we, we get stuck on a thing and we, we try to hold on to that memory. We try to hold on to that experience and we want to put it out there for other people, right? Like, look, let's be honest, like most of the video stores that I grew up around, about 75% of their inventory was probably just absolute dreck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> mo- most of it was probably pretty, pretty crappy. We'll talk about the film distribution business on another <laughs> podcast. I don't want to drag the listener down to my level. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get into that some other time. That, that There's better people to talk about that than me. But there is this part of me that thinks outside of the the big name mainstream. I mean, yeah, Casablanca. It's a great film. I don't need to tell you that. But of course, it's going to be in everyone's like top 500 films. Of course, naturally. But there's a lot of little indie joints and a lot of um, what back then would have been world film, you know, international film, which was just a fancy way of saying movies with subtitles. 
So or terrible overdubs or just god awful that overdubs. are enjoyable for the nostalgia there's, of the shitty dub. Sure, sure. There, there's something to be said for that. I mean, again, I host a horror podcast. I talk about weird movies all the time. But there is another part of me that also thinks that, like, preservationism is one thing. It's it's maybe important to have a record of all of the terrible horror movies from an era. But do we need copies of all of them? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a really difficult subject. I'm with you, though. Physical media is valuable to me, the individual. Not because I'm trying to own something that, at the end of the day, I don't own. Yeah. I mean, what has the verbiage on the DVD, the Blu-ray, the VHS tape been forever? This is not for public viewing. This is for home <laughs> use. Right. And again, to get back into the business side of it, they don't want anybody to have access to anything. What they want is for you to go back to the 30s where you go to the theater uh -huh. and watch the movie and then it goes back to the distributor. For me, it's my version of a library. These are films I either enjoy or I think are worth my time. And when I want to sit down and watch a movie, I don't want to go through the process of infinite choices. It's, it's like limiting yourself to things that have value to you if only being a good memory or a good experience that you want to relive. You should never stop entertaining new things and observing new things and that that's not the point of this but to have access to that library to me that's what physical media is it's putting tangible value into something that other people may not care about but in five years when somebody says do you remember that film that the guy broke into the house and then they killed him with a hacksaw yeah, I've got that, actually. Or in my case, <laughs> hey, Lucas, you talk about the worst film ever. Have you seen Serum? <laughs> You're really stuck on that, man. I, it's a great example for me, because if I didn't have it, it wouldn't exist. Well, so you're kind of hitting upon the next point I wanted to bring up, right? So on one hand, we're in a better position than we were way back when. You know, you talked about, you know, film in the 1930s and 40s. You It would be in the theater. It might be in the theater for couple of days six weeks six months so on but then it would go back to the distributor and you may never see it again in your entire life and in the late 80s and early 90s uh you know movie stores or music stores were a place where you could learn about new stuff coming in there were posters of coming soon there was um industry rags of oh uh you know megadeth is releasing this new album blah 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 blah, blah. but on the other hand those places ended up being uh, gatekeepers, you know, it became very limiting. Chain stores like Blockbuster for movies or FYE for music and movies and everything else, or for those of us who are truly antiques, uh, Blockbuster music, you know, they were mostly carrying mainstream stuff. Like if you were looking for uh, like a fairly, you know, a, a punk band like Seven Seconds probably wasn't going to have something at Blockbuster. You might be able to get the Ramones. You could probably find a Sex Pistols album. But if you were looking for crass you weren't gonna find it at at your local blockbuster wow, <laughs> yeah i know i'm showing my fucking age here is what i'm doing um now there was always again that weirder um uh, b-grade movies direct-to-video indie stuff some some foreign films etc um you know but but is it just my imagination joe are services like Netflix and HBO, those are the, the big name mainstream uh, streaming platforms, are they starting to constrain films the same way as big national chains used to? Yes. I can elaborate on that answer if you'd like. <laughs> please do. Please do. I remember when Netflix first launched their streaming service and it was offered as the not contemporary, but the the partner to the physical media service. Netflix was originally a company that you went on their website and you picked movies, just like the library, and they put you on a wait list. And when your DVD came up, they sent it to you. Remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I know one or two people who still have their DVD service, but 99% of Netflix users, I think, have moved on from that. So they launched the streaming service. The streaming service was the supplemental piece to the physical media. You could order the physical media, or 
if it was available, you could just watch it on Netflix under streaming. And it became, like I said earlier, it became the facilitator of all of the film and movies that were out there for you. And it gave you more instant access rather than waiting for the DVD to go through the mail. But I remember the year they raised the price on streaming. I remember the year Netflix made their first film, or at least the first one that showed up in my feed. And I remember saying to myself, this was absolutely a business decision. This is absolutely someone's 10-year plan to get everyone back to the, you don't need to own anything, just pay us your membership fee and we will own the media and you can watch it forever. Then I started to see more and more Netflix financed media. The the Netflix original film. And while there are some great ones that exist, and I think we all need to be thankful for some of the decisions they've made as recently as this year and last year, you know, Squid Game is a thing that they distributed. The majority of it is crap. <laughs> The majority of it is no better than the direct-to-video B-movie crap that film distributors gave to video stores in the 80s and the 90s. Why is that an issue? Because the person whose job it was to make film available to you is now the person who's creating the film. Now they have an agenda, and the prices have gone up every year since then, why is this a bad thing? Because now everybody is answering to the same ethics groups that the filmmakers are. And that's the studio. That's the bottom dollar. That's the entertainment business. So the question, are they becoming constraining the same way national chains did? Yes, because somebody somewhere has made an agreement that says, you have to push the shit that we tell you to push before you can push the shit you want to. Mm. And I think it's shifted. I think it's before it was 90-10, you know, mainstream films um, to stuff that maybe is underground independent and we're interested in that. Now it's a 10-90. And I would argue it's much lower than that because like you said, Disney owns the fucking world right now. Everybody is being forced to participate in the same old journey that we all did when we didn't have access to the media. The fact that it's available in your home doesn't change the real perception. And I mentioned it earlier, the quantity that's being created is forcing you and everybody else that has to navigate through what they want you to watch to say, crap, Nope, not good. You're not invested in it anymore, but you stay subscribed because, well, it's only this much per month. And, you know, if I, if I want to watch something, it really is replacing over-the-air television because there's an entire generation of people that still just turn the TV on and whatever comes on, they watch it. But you and I are sitting here saying, what's the number? How much do I have to pay you to just watch the shows and not have to watch the ads for Cialis? That number is higher than you and I really perceive that it would be. But if you knew what the number was, you'd think about paying it, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, so if it was $500 a month to just watch the shows and not the crap, a lot of people might pay it. Yeah, I, I can't tell you I wouldn't. You, you know, for for anyone who's ever uh, dealt with a cable TV company, like so, when I had purchased my most recent bout of internet service, it was I could pay uh, X amount of dollars to just get the internet, or I could pay X amount of dollars minus like thirty dollars and get internet and TV. And I've got to be honest with you, I have used my my cable company provided TV service exactly. Three times. And it's not because there's not good stuff on there. Believe me, there's been more than one night in the last few months where I've been like, you know what? I should just put on an episode of Mythbusters and eat a pizza and go to bed. Um, but for the most part, I have no interest in TV. Like broadcast TV, even even with like a very specialized network, 
doesn't interest me. I don't care. I It's no longer a facilitation of interesting things, right? Well, yeah. Exactly. The reason Wolfman Jack is considered to be one of the greatest DJs of all time is because he brought music that he liked to people that had not heard it otherwise. Broadcast TV in general has been a business as long, if not longer, than we've been alive. Well, sure. But it's gotten out of control to the point, and it's trickling into everything else now. You can't just click on a movie. You can't even pay for a subscription fee, click on a movie, (laughs) and get the movie. You still have to click through the ad. Well, and it's interesting you bring up the, uh, the, the streaming service with ads phenomenon. I always recommend streaming services like Tubi and Crackle and Pluto. Like, those are the three that I think people kind of sleep on. Pluto is more akin to cable TV, like kind of straight line, you know, mainline cable TV. You're going to have to edit the shit out of that. Um, <laughs> it's, we we record in bursts, and you can tell we're getting towards the end of the night because I start stumbling on my words more. Um, like Pluto is maybe the closest to cable TV. They have channels that are playing, and if you want to watch... Um, I don't know, CSI, there's probably a CSI channel that's playing. They often will have, at least I've seen it a few times, a strictly Adams Family channel. So if you want to watch old episodes of the Adams Family. But they also have a streaming option for streaming movies. Uh, Crackle is much the same way, though it's a little more streamlined. And then there's Tubi, which is the one I kind of recommend the most because it has just the deepest catalog. Um, There's a lot of crap on Tubi. Oh my God, there's so much garbage on Tubi. But there's a lot of really good, weird deep cuts, a lot of weird indie stuff. They have a remarkable selection of Werner Herzog movies. I don't know why, but they just do. You know, uh, so in a way, I find that these uh, these services kind of function like mom and pop video stores or like local record store. You know, again, they carry the oddball crap, but they carry some big names too. Um like with Tubi, a good example recently, uh, we, my girlfriend and I were scrolling through one night and found a movie called uh, Horror in the High Desert. It's kind of a mockumentary horror thing. Is it the greatest movie ever made? No, not really. But is it good? Yeah, it's good. It's well made. It's it's some of the some of the acting is a little meh, but again, it's an indie joint, so you kind of know what you're getting into. But it's mostly a really good movie. Is that because it's not mainstream? Is the reflex now, I I mentioned it earlier, you have to become your own filter again. Is the reflex now the same as it's always been? Because I know this isn't a big budget, big film industry film that's going to do exactly the same tropes that I always see. Because I perceive this as being an independent production, is that why you're watching it? Because you're giving it a chance instead of assuming up front nope it's another disney fit the formula um it, it's i could i could play the avengers side by side with star wars and it's the same movie um we should never overlook the fact that i am a neurotic weirdo <laughs> and that i have a, a, admittedly an almost almost pathological aversion to like mainstream movies i do i same thing with music same thing with tv i admit that i own that everyone should take my film advice with a grain of salt but i think i'm willing to forgive indie cinema a lot more than i am mainstream cinema right like horror in the high desert is a great example some of the acting is a little uneven and what little like special effects it has it doesn't have a lot they're a little dated and a little shoddy, but it's not a bad movie. Honestly, there is some beautiful cinematography in this movie, actually. And I find the main character that the movie focuses on to be pretty compelling, actually. I'm willing to forgive its flaws just a tiny bit more than I would if this movie were released by like A24 or... Uh, so somewhere even as big as like Fox, you know, I would be way, way less forgiving because I know the money, you know, we all can find out the budgets on these films. I mean, I I've ranted away on, on many occasions here about how much I don't like a lot of Marvel superhero movies. In fact, I think most of them are kind of crap actually, but I also think say what you will of them. Like, we all know that the actors in those movies are good actors. They're good at what they do, 
Like, I don't think anyone in this room will argue that Chadwick Boseman was a great actor. You know, no questions <laughs> asked. Like, that's, I, I'm an asshole, but I'm not stupid. He was a good actor. But at the same time, I would never forgive Marvel Studios or a Disney backed thing like, you know, a Star Wars thing, if they just put out crap, it would be unacceptable for the amount of money and media attention and press and social media coverage they're going to get. There's no excuse for them to put up bad movies, right? I'm willing to be a little more uh, reasonable if it's this is a band that has just enough money to put out a demo. They're recording it with the best equipment they have in the best studio environment they have, and it comes out a little raw. Well, I can tolerate a little raw if it's a good album, whether or not the production matches, you know. Have you heard Barn? Barn? Yes. No. We'll talk <laughs> after well, the show. Well, <laughs> Joe and I were, were kind of joking in between recordings earlier and going on uh, Bandcamp and looking up some silly stuff that we were cracking jokes about. And I have to wonder, Joe, if you find that services like Bandcamp or even uh, maybe more mainstream stuff like Spotify or Tidal or whatever you're using, um, are they in a way doing the same thing that services like Tubi and Crackle and Pluto are doing, getting exposure for lesser known artists? The answer is yes, and I'm concerned about most of them today. Uh, Bandcamp was recently purchased by Epic, Ugh. so at there's all I have to say, right? Now it's it's owned by a bigger company that's going to try to do something with it other than what it is. Um, I, I understand that people who make money for a living want to make money, and I, I, I think that they're good at doing that, but I don't think things are good, and I never really have. <laughs> um, they're not good because they're independent, right? Yeah. You can make good independent media and i'm not talking about your band's demo from 1996 where you recorded it on a four track that's not good because it's, in, it's not what i'm saying i i think when somebody takes the time whatever time that is to create something that's either the best they could do or better than they thought they could do i think it shows i think somebody's I, I think most people can spot bullshit. I think if you sit down and listen to a band, even if it sounds like the worst four-track recording <laughs> from a cassette tape that's been copied 20 times, if it sounds real, most people can hear it. And most people will give it the credit and the chance that it deserves. But when you take something like a band camp and start recommending artists because somebody paid a $10,000 sponsorship fee. You know, the worst thing ever right now is Amazon because it doesn't matter what you search for. You're going to get two sponsored things that you have to now train yourself to scroll past and ignore before you can maybe find the thing you were actually looking for. I like what Bandcamp has done. I like what Patreon has done. I like what YouTube has done. But I think we can all see that there is some writing on the wall. If it's not today, it's very soon. Somebody's going to have to create the next platform for independent artists. And I have to say, for my money, it's going to be something like a Reddit. But people are actually going to start reverting. You're going to start to see more websites of independent artists like you used to. Remember when everybody had a GeoCities? <laughs> yep, yep. I really do think yep. that's going to be the next step because everybody wants to talk about their music but and movies, but they fall into the tropes of the social media machine. And eventually we're all just going to click delete and that's going to be the end of it because we're all tired of it. You know, I think the younger generation is setting an example that ours and the older generation is is talking about but most people are too afraid to do and that's turn off your fucking facebook <laughs> stop talking about your real life you know it's not it's it's there's a little bit of high school mentality in there and i don't want to get into that here that's not the purpose of this show but i really do think that the louder the big companies get when they take over 
are little facilitators like a band camp and they start making it into something that it's not, that's when the audience moves to the next thing. So what's the next thing going to be? I don't know. I just know that the best place today for music, I think, is Bandcamp. As long as it doesn't change and people are able to not just make money for the music that they create, but be effectively associated with similar artists, I think it's a good thing. You know, DistroKid is one of the big names that comes up for independent artists because you can pay, I think it's 10 or 20 bucks a year, and they will put your music on every streaming service. How valuable is that? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I think had a service like that existed 15 years ago, I think the music scene would be wildly different. Like, you know, again, there's always going to be pop, right? There's always going to be pop music and there's always, and there's always going to be pop films, pop culture. And for the record, I don't think that's like intrinsically a bad thing. I'm not the biggest fan of the Beatles, right? But it's impossible to ignore that the Beatles' first like five albums are pure, unmitigated pop. It wasn't really until like the end of their career that they were doing something that wasn't just pop music ultimately. And so there's this part of me that thinks that there is a value in pop cinema. You know, we venerate the early years of the Universal Monsters. You know, uh, Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Um, Lon Chaney in, well, everything he did, Boris Karloff, <laughs> and so on and so forth, right? We venerate those movies because they are fantastic movies. The Mummy is, uh, the original Universal The Mummy is one of my favorite horror movies. It's so good. It's so creepy. But we need to remember <laughs> who that the Universal Monsters are the Universal Monsters, you know? So there's this part of me that thinks that... Uh, Follow me here. I'm, I'm going to kind of ramble a bit because it's the end of the night. But uh, I have this theory that the punk rock movement of the 70s and, and to an extent like the the, the predecessor or uh, yeah the predecessor stuff of the 60s up through the 80s, I think that's a phenomenon that we're never going to be done with now. I think we're going to be dealing with these kind of like punk rock reactionary movements anytime something happens, right? Services like SoundCloud, Bandcamp used to be purely independent media. And then, of course, the realities of living in the hellscape we all live in sinks in and those companies start to suffer. Someone will come in and spend money and it's only a matter of time before that person who's come in and made the investment says, well, now I want you to promote X, Y, and Z as well. Well, guess what? Everyone's fucked after that point. But it seems to me that the democratizing power of technology that we have always ends up kind of creating a, a push-pull dynamic. You know, inevitably, like you said, there's going to be another service that pops up that is purely independent media. And then they'll get an investor and then another one will happen. Now, I am not a utopianist. Genuinely not. I I I I don't know that anyone can guess that I'm kind of cynical by by <laughs> by, by the way I do this show. But there is a part of me that thinks that I, I do have a small amount of optimism that there's always gonna be that kind of popular pushback. And that's not a thing of populism. It is a thing of people get sick and tired of these movies. You know, we've we've said in a recent episode that the seams on the Disney Marvel movies are starting to show. And people are kind of seemingly getting annoyed with it. I know I've heard a lot of people personally, and I don't know if the money bears this out. I'm probably wrong, but I know a lot of people personally who are very tired of Disney properties. So they're moving on. They're trying to find new stuff. On one hand, that's depressing because Disney controls a massive amount of the media right now. But on the other hand, there is a value in that because it means more independent movies. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. Um, there are probably way smarter people out there who can talk about this at better length with more <laughs> with more actual information than me and Joe kind of uh, punch drunkenly rambling at the end of the night. I think that somebody needs to come out of the woodwork and say the next thing is going to be real because that's what everybody chases, right? We're all chasing a real person. We want to have real interactions, not somebody who's paying someone else to act on their behalf or somebody who is going to 
overwhelm the audience with advertisements. I think we all generally are just sick of that, but we all let it go when the next thing comes around. We set ourselves up to get the same shit, right? Do you know or do you remember the original design and the original purpose for Twitter? Only only vaguely. I wasn't big into Twitter for a long, long time. I wasn't either, but someone is going to tell me I'm wrong and provide evidence, but I've never let this memory leave my mind. Originally, Twitter was supposed to be a way for you and people that were close to you to communicate in what is effectively a group chat. Interesting. And again, someone can tell me I'm wrong, but I remember when Twitter was the website and SMS text messages and somebody deliberately sold it to me as, no, it's really cool, right? Because if you send a text, it costs like so much you know, you have only so many texts a month. You can, yeah, that's right. There's a point in our history where we couldn't send unlimited messages. Um, but let's just roll with me here for a second. So if you go to like, let's say you're visiting Chicago and you've got your friends with you and one of them is at the museum and the other one's at the art gallery and somebody's down the street having a beer. It's probably me and Lucas. You can send one message and it gets tweeted to all your friends. I bring that up because... Twitter became shit the day people started advertising. Hmm. Television became shit, not because of commercials, because of reality television. No, (laughs) it was the bottom third crawl. When broadcast TV would advertise for another show during the show you're watching Hmm. and then advertise for the show you just watched during the other show, it went too far. People rebelled. People started going to the internet and streaming services. And now, because it was new, somebody said, well, let's just try investing some money and some time into this platform. And let's get our artists to do their, their little tweets and this and that. And by the way, just mention that you're making a new record. And we always let it slip past us. I want the next thing to be fuck you. Let's call the service fuck you, right? (laughs) I don't care how big of an artist you are. I don't care about how famous you are. If you come on my platform and you start talking about yourself, guess what? You're gone. (laughs) Right? Because that's that's the utopia that everybody wants, right? Where independent people that only consider independent artists to be credible can only talk to independent artists, right? That's what everybody wants. It's just not possible. It's a dance that we can't avoid, yet we all complain about Mm. and never changes. So maybe we're at the end of last decade's dance or the last 20 years dance. What's the next dance going to be? I don't know, but I'm ready to say, nope, crap, not spending time on your garbage. (laughs) Well, I think that that's as good of a spot to end it here. Like this episode was something that I've wanted to do for a long time because. Did we even talk about the video store enough? (laughs) um, I'm going to say we did. I'm going to say we did. So with that, that's our show for tonight. You know, for the audience, I, I'm, I'm hoping all of you are, you know, not completely lost at this point. For those of you who are still here, do you have memories of movie stores you want to share? And what are some of your favorite deep cut finds that could only happen in that environment? What's your preferred place to find new media? Let us know. You can contact us at the Fright Lab Podcast at gmail.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at Fright underscore lab underscore pod, as well as on Letterboxd, where we are. Fright Lab Pod. The Fright Lab is written by me, Lucas Yoakum, and is co-hosted and produced by Joseph Wren. Can you do us a favor? Will you share this episode with your friends or maybe share it on social media, even though we just spent like 40 minutes complaining about it? Word of mouth exposure really works, and we appreciate every single one of our listeners. Joe, do you have anything you want to plug here at the end of the night? Shout out to the Nerf Herder Council at NHC Podcast. Those guys are talking about all the nerdy subjects, including Star Wars and Star Trek. I've been hanging out with AJ, doing some impromptu live streams, talking about Star Trek and how much we love that nerdy thing. Uh, Keep your eyes out for Trek AF. I want everybody that loves heavy metal and heavy metal subjects to check out 
all the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. But what I'm going to need right now is for everyone, if this is your first time listening to The Fright Lab, or you've been here from the very beginning, we appreciate you. So take out your phone, scroll to the right or the bottom or wherever it happens to be. Leave us a five-star review. Give us a thumbs up. Let us know what your thoughts are on this episode and tell us about your memories of the video store. You're Lucas Say It, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Lucas, tell everyone how much we love independent media. Happily so. You know, I've said before and I'll say it again, podcasting can be kind of a thankless profession sometimes but you know you do it because you love it more than any other reason and even if we weren't getting listeners and we have been getting new listeners we'd still be doing this show so when you do independent media you start to realize that independent media works when everybody's cooperating and everybody's helping each other out so if you are making horror adjacent music be that metal be that punk be that rock and roll are you doing some next level like dark ambient stuff or are you doing some sort of horror themed hip-hop project guess what we want to hear it and we would like to play that music for our fans on our show we will happily give you a shout out again reach out to us the fright lab podcast at gmail.com with that audience good night and we will talk to you soon <laughs>